Good morning, everyone. My name is Lexan. I'm reading Psalms 139. Please open your Bible and read along with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hand me in behind and before, and lay your hand be upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is hide I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you; the night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you, for you form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works; my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would say, "Slay the wicked, O God! O man of blood, depart from me!" They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not love those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them with my. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. All right. Well, good morning, Solano. My name is Paul. I'm the associate pastor here. It's good to be with you. I've been out for a few weeks. I took a vacation. We were in Oregon for a family reunion, and then we took a Sunday off and had a family day.、Uh, our lead pastor Andrew is also out, so we won't see him for a few weeks. And、uh, I just want to thank some of the elders who've been able to preach、uh, through the Psalms. I think it's been good for us as a church to hear from them. Uh, Peter, having been an elder for several years now, and then a few of our new elders.、Um, so even though I wasn't here, I was tuning in、um, on the live stream and appreciating how God spoke through our elders too.、Uh, 
Uh, help us connect with uh, the Psalms. I'm calling this series God in the Raw because they give us a raw look at uh, who God is um, and not who we want him to be, not uh, some kind of man-made image, but who he really is and who we can be, how we can be raw before God. So I titled uh, today's sermon, uh, The Cure for Self, Low Self-Esteem. That might be a little bit of an ambitious title, uh, but I do believe that uh, that is what Scripture offers us, particularly this passage, um, and that because, you know, self-esteem uh, is, I think, a low self-esteem is one of, one of the biggest problems that I think is facing the human condition, and it's actually been one of my biggest struggles in my life, and so the psalm I chose, this is why I chose this Psalm 139, and next week's Psalm uh, Psalm 4, they both deal with some of my biggest struggles I've had um, in my Christian walk. Uh, and so this one is, um, help, is, is a, a psalm that has helped me with this issue of, of low self-esteem. But I don't think I'm alone in this. Uh, in, the, in the 1950s, uh, Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And this captured a whole generation of boomers, they'd be called boomers now, um, with the power of believing in yourself. Uh, now, he also included in it kind of a faith, a kind of a pseudo-Christian faith perspective. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily agree with his solutions, but I think he identified the problem because what he said is, he wrote, everywhere, everywhere you go, you encounter people who are inwardly afraid, who shrink from life, who suffer a deep sense of of inadequacy and insecurity and who doubt their own powers. They doubt themselves. Um, and I think he's right. I think that's an accurate uh, observation about the problem that faces many of us um, back in the 50s, now in American culture and, and, and around the world. And you just have to listen to people tell their story. And this is going to be a theme that comes up a lot of the time, is that struggle with feelings of self-loathing, of self-doubt, self-hatred, inadequacy. Um, you can see that as one of the main character arcs of almost any superhero movie is they have to learn to accept themselves, embrace themselves. Our pop, our pop song anthem sing about this. It's clearly one of the issues that, that plagues humankind. Um, and it plagued me. It plagued me for a long time. It still does, but it really gripped me in my late 20s, early 30s. I had horrible cynicism about myself and pessimism. And the way I would say it in my head is I would say, you know, God seemed to have gifted people and made them unique except me. Like I was somehow excluded from God's good creation and I just felt like I had nothing to offer and I was just lame. Now that's pretty irrational, but I couldn't shake it. You just have to ask my wife. She says that cheerleading me was a full-time job on top of being a mother and, and having a full-time job with crew. Just to keep me going, I had a deep problem. It was, it was, it, this cynicism was wired deep, and I've, I've kind of reflected on where that came from. You know, I think as a child, probably a lot of this struggles form in our childhood. You know, I was born with a birth defect, and so I was always kind of ashamed of my, of my birth defect. I wanted to hide it. 
Uh, I was always, I loved sports, but I was always undersized. And so I had a bit of a shame about, I had some body shame there, comparison shame. I got made fun of in, in, in elementary school because I lived in San Jose. Um, and, and I went to school in Los Altos. So uh, these are all the kids of the, you know, people were getting rich in the tech boom, but I lived in San Jose, which is, who thinks of that? But apparently I would get made fun of. So I dealt with a lot of shame as a child, but I told not a soul. That was something I hid away in a vault in my heart and threw away the key. I was not going to talk about it. Now, I think so what happened, I, again, I'm, I'm just armchair psychoanalyzing myself here, but I think what happened is I shed some of the superficial insecurity, but what was left over was a cynicism. And I share that because I think a lot of us probably um, have stories and, uh, of how and why we suffer with, with uh, uh, self-loathing and inadequacy about ourselves. Some of you, maybe you've experienced that from abusive relationships, you've heard messages from the culture, you've internalized messages that you are worthless, that you don't have anything to offer. Um, and so it's a struggle that many of us face for various reasons. We, we, there are messages that we have a hard time um, uh, getting out of our minds and our hearts and they bring us down. And the question is, does the Bible address this? Does the scripture allow us to think positively about ourselves? Doesn't that seem to clash with the message that we are sinful, right? In fact, we have a name for that, a, a theological term for that, called total depravity, which means we are completely sinful and deserving of God's judgment. And so, does that mean, is that mutually exclusive with being able to think positively about ourselves? Or does it actually make our sense of self-loathing even worse? How does the Bible help deal with low self-esteem? Um, so I think this psalm gives us an emphatic answer. Uh, uh, an emphatic and powerful answer. And so what I want to look at is, what are we permitted to believe about ourselves? Oh, you go to the next slide. What are we permitted to believe about ourselves? I said this this way because I want you to know God, the Bible gives you permission to think a certain way about yourself, right? It, I, I could say it's stronger. You must believe this about yourself because the Bible says it. But I want to woo you in. The Bible's wooing us in. You have permission to think this. But it doesn't end there. We have a response. We're compelled to respond to God because, because of what the Bible says about ourselves. Then we'll look at how are we going to live in light of all that. So what are we permitted to believe about ourselves? Well, this Psalm 139 starts off and says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And it's an exclamation mark. So the psalmist starts off um, praising God for this idea that God searches and knows him. He starts off with this idea that is so big for him it's going to make him unable to wrap his mind around it. It's the idea that God pays attention to him. God is, is um, uh, extremely interested in everything of the psalmist's life, right? He has searched him and known him, right? And so here's what he says in verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down, 
You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. A couple images come to mind here. One of them is that of an intimate friend. The psalmist seems to be saying about God is, God, you get me. You know what I'm thinking before I even think it. I don't know if you've ever had a relationship like that where someone just can tell by looking at you how you're feeling. They know what you're going to order at your favorite restaurant. They can finish each other's sandwiches. I mean sentences. It's a, it's a description of intimacy, uh, of love. But the other image that comes to mind is I was, um, I was at uh, my, my um, family reunion and one of my cousins had, uh, was a new mom. And her baby was already one years old, yet she still um, doted on this baby uh, in a way that a new mother does when, they're, when, they're, when their babies are infants. She still would have the baby on the baby monitor. So when we were out socializing, she would stop and interrupt any conversation and look at her baby on her phone. Oh, he just rolled over. Oh, I think he's fallen asleep. She's still enthralled with every movement her baby is making. And so that's the image I get. The psalmist is saying that God is doting on him with like a new parent love that just wants to soak in every moment of their new baby, except that moment never, that enthrallment never ends, right? For us, you know, we have three kids. We felt that way with our first, but by the second and the third, you know, you kind of put them in the crib and they'll figure out how to fall asleep. But God, that that love, that parental love, that intimate love is intense our whole lives. And so that's the first thing we're permitted to believe. This is what the psalmist is exclaiming. God loves us intimately. Um, but the problem with this kind of intense love, what's the problem with this love that we're going to feel? What is this kind of love, it can, it, what does it do to us? It can make us feel uncomfortable. You know, uh, Miguel made a great point in our huddle this morning. We can feel guilty to receive this kind of love like we don't deserve it. And so some of us have felt that even in relationships, we have a tendency to want to pull away from intense love, right? And usually what that's rooted in is our own feeling of worthlessness. That we don't deserve that kind of love, and so we'll either pull away from it or we'll cut it off because we believe that they'll eventually find us out and not love us. And instead of getting hurt by that, we'll, we'll be the first ones to make the move. And so we want to run away from that kind of love, even human love, let alone holy, divine love. And so we're, this is good news. God loves us intimately, but there's, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable with God being so into my life. I don't think I deserve that. Well, the psalmist actually, I think, addresses that. I think he feels the same thing. Look what he says in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, make, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. To my eyes and ears, the psalmist is describing self-imposed exile from God. He's in a relationship with God and at some point he's like, how could I get away from this? 
how can I run away from this? And we can imagine what might make him feel that way. Probably some kind of shame. Maybe his own mistakes. Maybe some feelings of inadequacy. Some feelings of unworthiness. And he's like, how would I ever even run away from God? So self-imposed exiles, but he says, even if I were to do that, God, you would still show up. You are leading me by the hand. You are holding me even when I run from you. And so this is describing, he's at, what he's adding to the idea that God loves us intimately is he's extolling the fact that God loves him unconditionally. He will always chase after us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I love somebody and they pull away from me, that hurts. You know, I don't know what most of us do. I would probably say, well, fine. You run away from me, I'm out of here then. I'll go find someone that's gonna reciprocate. Not God. That's not the way God loves us. Our running away from him in no way diminishes the zeal of his intimate love for us. And in fact, he continues to chase us and hold us and lead us. And so the question is, why does God do this? What is the basis of this kind of intimate and unconditional love for us? What causes God to give that to us? And this is what I think is one of the most important, the answer to that question is one of the most important things we as human beings could ever believe. And what we're about to read, I, I want you to never forget this. I want you to hold on to this as the treasure that it is meant to be and why this psalm has helped so many of us. Why does God love us like this? Verse 13, for, that's a key preposition in the Hebrew. He's gonna give the explanation for all of this. For you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My soul knows it very well. Skipping down to verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. You are loved intimately and unconditionally because he created you. I want us to revel in the simplicity of that. I want us to anchor our souls into that truth for the rest of our lives. You are loved that way like a doting parent, like a protective father, like an intimate friend, like a lover who's gonna chase you wherever you go because God created you. In the, uh, in the Enlightenment, apparently there was an existential crisis. How do we know we exist? What if this is all just a lie? And so Descartes came up with that famous saying, I think, therefore I am. And I guess it put everyone at ease. Oh, I guess I really exist. It's funny reading that now. That doesn't do much for me. Does that help you guys? I think, therefore I am. Is that, does that comfort you? I don't know. It doesn't do much for me. But do you hear what the psalmist is saying? I think this is a more powerful anchor for us. He's saying, I exist, therefore I am loved by my creator. And so 
this is what the psalmist wants our soul, this is what God wants our soul to believe. But it doesn't stop there. He actually describes the way in which God created us to, um, to poetically show this love, right? And so we see this list of descriptions, and I just want to walk through them. I want to soak this in. It says that we were formed by God himself. The image there is like being molded. I don't know if you ever worked with clay, right? It's this intimate, personal um, experience of shaping this piece of clay slowly and delightfully over time. And God is saying that's how he formed us. We're not an assembly line. He knitted us together, he formed us himself. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, it says. Fearfully, I think, implying the idea of beyond value. So much value that it is scary to even be in the presence of something with so much dignity. It'd be like if you just got into the presence of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something on earth, maybe the Mona Lisa, and you're like, oh my gosh, but even of more infinite value. We are, we are fearfully made. God has imbued us with infinite value and dignity. We are wonderfully made. Our creation is good. It, inspire, it should inspire wonder in us. It says we are intricately woven it says we are made in secret. I was meditating on that. I, 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 I think it conveys the idea, of, again, similar to an artist. When they're making the piece of art, you know, a lot of artists, they don't want you in the room when they're creating it. They don't want to spoil the reveal. It's just them and their piece of art. So that then in the gallery, the big the big aha moment comes out, and I think this is what God is saying, is there was a moment in time where it was just you, just he knew what he was creating in secret. He was just enjoying the creation of you, and then the big reveal was coming. But he had that time with just you like an artist. And lastly, it says, you're every day recorded in his book. You're every day recorded my dad uh, found this book here. This is my mom's journal, my baby book. She journaled to me when I was a baby. And, um, and so she, you know, the, her first entry here, July 13th, 1981, I was five weeks old. She says, this is the first time I'm writing to you in your book, and you're already five weeks old. I love you so much. I can't imagine life without you. Your cry sometimes is demanding, but mostly precious. <laughs> my mother, having become my mother, began to delight in every moment I had. Now, she did a pretty good job maintaining this journal for a few years, pretty consistently. A little intermittent as the years went by, by, by 1983, so I'm three years old. Um, there was a big break in her last entry comes in 1987, I'm six years old. She says, Paul, mom is so sorry. She has waited so long to write you. You are almost six years old. Your first baby tooth has come out today. You are so big now. And that was the last entry. You know, she was delighting in my tooth. 
my first tooth. And she wrote it down. And she did pretty good. I was six years old. And I think the, my mom's love and a mother's love to journal her child's every moment is just a shadow of what God does. God records your every moment. There is no intermittent time. There is no break in the years. He does not stop when you're six. You're every day recorded. And this is not clerical. She's not just writing down his facts. She is delighting in her relationship with me. This is a love journal. That's what the psalmist is conveying about your creation. He has delighted in every single moment, every day of your life. And the fact that it was written before you were born, I think hints at that it's also guided by his providence. This is my mom reacting to me. But this is... Also, God saying, I have designed every day for you and written them all down. And so the psalmist responds and says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he pulls back for a second and he says, wonderful all your works. My soul knows it very well. This is what God wants us to believe about ourselves. God is, you are part of God's wonderful works. God is showing off his glory and you and we as human beings, we are the height of it and he lets his soul deeply know it. He lets his soul be uh, guided, determined, changed. This is the, the, the thought that no one can steal from him. His soul knows it very well. This is the good news of our creation. And so, the psalmist is reveling in this. We need to revel in this every day in our life. But it doesn't end there because now there's a response. It doesn't end with us being created and that's good news. The psalmist responds to God in verse 17. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I can count them, you are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And so the the psalmist realizes that his creation is actually an invitation to be in relationship with his creator. The creator isn't just a distant God who omnisciently knows our thoughts, but he then invites us into his heart. He invites us to know him in return. And so the psalmist is enthralled with God. The psalmist is saying, I can't get enough of who you are, God. And so that is what faith does. Faith responds to God with delight. We are created so that we can know God. He lets us in. And so the psalmist can't help but be transfixed by that. And he says, when I awake, I am still with you. Right? It's like the idea, have you ever had a good dream? Uh, Like a great dream. And then you woke up and you're like, ah, back to reality. The psalmist is saying with God, it's actually the opposite. I awake and it's actually better than any dream or fantasy I can imagine. To be in a real relationship with you is the greatest reality that is better than any dream. He pinches himself. It's no dream. This is what it's like to know God. This is the light of knowing God. 
But there is a barrier to us feeling this way. There is something that is going to block us from experiencing our creator with this kind of joy and intimacy and confidence and delight. And so the psalmist describes this in the next verse. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. This is shocking language coming out of a very encouraging psalm. All of a sudden, he's praying vengeance on God's enemies. And so let me just start by addressing this passage and see the big idea of what the psalmist is conveying is he's expressing loyalty to God. So this is the second response to our creator. Having known he was created by a loving creator, his first response is to delight in God. His second response is to say, and I am loyal to you, God. So notice the language, I hate those who hate you. There are people who rise up against you, God, and I loathe them. Now, before we react too strongly about this, can't we understand that? I want you to think about somebody you love dearly. How would you feel about someone who attacked them and hated them and spit on them and mistreated them? You'd have some hard feelings. And so the psalmist is saying, I am loyal to you, God, which means I can't stand people who hate you and rebel against you. And so we need to wrestle with this, right? This is what's called imprecatory prayer. This is part of why I chose Psalm 139, because of how much it's helped me, but also because this is a theme in the Psalms. This is God in the raw. This is part of the rawness that we're going to see these imprecatory prayer, which means they are prayers calling down God's justice and judgment on the wicked. And here it is. And what this is doing, this is very jarring, isn't it, church family? Isn't it very jarring to read this after this beautiful picture of love and intimacy? We're supposed to feel that. Because it is jarring, it is shocking, because imprecatory prayers are, um, they are alerting us to a horrible, horrible reality that is worse than the worst horror movie we could ever watch that makes us want to turn our eyes away. It's the worst thing that could imaginable that could have happened is that um, after having been lovingly created in such a way, intricately woven, we would grow up and turn from our creator and rebel against him and say, thank you for creating me. I will do it my own way, God. Why don't you just get out of the way? We have a hard time feeling this. And the reason why, I think there's a, um, an interesting literary um, insight that can help us. When you see a good villain in a book or a movie, what makes them a good villain, you know what makes them a good villain? They think they're the hero of the story. They think they're the good guys. A good example of this recently is uh, in the movie Marvel movie Thanos. 
He captures this very well. If you don't know the story, he was born on, a, on a, a, like a Saturn, a moon on Saturn, and he was part of a society where he wanted to belong, but there was poverty and injustice, and he suffered. And so when he got big and strong, he said, I know how to end poverty. I know how to end inequity. Just wipe out half the universe. Wipe out half the universe. And he's like, and so that was his plan. And so he's referred to as the Mad Titan for his crazy plan to enact his vision of goodness his way. And so by the end of the movie, you can't wait to see the Avengers finally wipe him off the face of the earth. Get him out of here. Do you know that's how the Bible is saying we should feel about evil in the world? Do you know how that's how creation feels about human beings? We are all mad titans running around with our own plan, our own vision of goodness. And God is saying, you are psycho. You are insane. And it is beyond wicked. And so this is pointing out a a fundamental, the psalmist knows something fundamental of being created that we don't accept as human beings. All creation accepts this except us, that to be created by God and all the benefits that come with that, to be created by God and have the intimacy and the love and the guidance and the, and the protection is a package deal. If we are to be created by God, we are also accountable to God. You can't have the beauty of your creation without being accountable to the holiness of your creator. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, which means by design you are morally made. You image God. You could be like God or you can turn from God. And so the effects of rebelling against our creator are twofold. We saw one of them right now. One is legal. We are condemned under God's righteous judgment when we rebel against God. And the other is existential. When we break from our relationship with God and we're alienated from him, we lose our sense of what it means to exist. We are weighed down with doubt and self-loathing. And so that intimacy, that relationship that the psalmist is experiencing, we've lost that. And when we lose that intimacy with God, we also lose the sense of affirmation that that relationship brings to our sense of ourself, to our sense of identity. So this should make us feel a tension. We should feel a tension in this, in this psalm. If God loved us and created us, how can he then want to slay us? How can he then have so much anger towards us? How can he go from such love and unconditional love to this to this anger. And so the answer is that, yes, there is an eagerness to slay the wicked, but there's a greater eagerness. There's a greater eagerness that brings us together as a church. That God desires that none shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. This psalm is calling for the hammer to fall, but that hammer never fell. God has continued to move forward with his plan to what? 
God, the the New Scripture says that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God demonstrates his creator love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His desire was stronger to bring us back to him. And so he sent his son Jesus to absorb that penalty and bring us back into a relationship with him. On the cross, mercy triumphed over judgment. Yes, this is calling for judgment. Yes, that is good. Yes, that hammer will fall one day. But first, mercy was offered to all who would come to him to believe and come back to your creator, to turn from being a mad titan thinking you can do this on your own and be your own kind of hero of your own story and you're just the villain and come back to a loving relationship with your creator. And Jesus brings us into that and so what the gospel is doing, it's reclaiming you from sin and wrath but when you get back to God, when you come back to God, what is found is that we've been beat up by Satan in the world. We've been believing, because the thing about Satan, you know, when you were created, everyone was cheering except one person, Satan, hated it. Hated that God loved you, hated that God created you, and so his number one lie is that you're worthless. His number one lie is that you shouldn't be here, you're a mistake, you're no good, you better keep proving yourself, or no one's gonna love you. Satan loves you to absorb those messages, and you've been being, we've been beaten up by those by this world. And so part of what the work of the love of Christ is to return us to a place of intimacy with God, of joy and confidence in your creation. You are not worthless. You are not weird or deficient. You are not a, not a mistake. God has written every one of your days in his book. He is enthralled and in love with you every moment. And the blood of Jesus proves that and seals that. And so the invitation is to come to him, believe in him, and enter into the relationship that you were created for by your creator. So how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of this good news? I have three application points. Number one, we want to turn from evil in ourselves as an act of loyalty to God. You're created by God. Let us delight in God and let us be loyal to God. Let us follow and obey our creator. And so notice the psalmist says here in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so notice after expressing a desire for judgment on the wicked, um, he is in no way self-righteous about it And in fact, he says, God, I want you to examine me. I want you to deal with my internal thoughts, my secret thoughts. I want you to cleanse me from them. And so notice how he took the initial search, the the, the intimate knowledge that God has for him, and he turns it into a desire to be cleansed by that presence. He fully embraces the presence of God as a, an, as, and the accountability that that brings. He fully embraces it. There's only one way a human being could ever embrace God's accountability on our life to search us in our most intimate, deep ways. There's only one way we could ever feel that way is if we feel 100% safe with God. 100% safe. And that's how the psalmist feels 
And that's how we can feel with God through Christ. We can open up our hearts to him. He is not the slayer of the wicked to us. He is not the judge. He is our loving creator. The father who disciplines us so that we may turn from evil ourselves. The second application is we need to embrace the journey of self-discovery as an act of delight in God. When I was struggling with insecurity and, I, and, I, and, I, and someone pointed out Psalm 139 to me, he had me read it over and over again and pray over it over and over again because it's not a head thing, it's a heart thing. It's a spiritual thing, actually. I had, to, I had to look at that passage I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and say, okay, that's true for me. It's true. God, you did it. You did it. You created me. And part of the way I lived out that faith journey was I began to actually uh, uh, embrace who I was. Like, I used to look at my, my heritage, my ethnic heritage. I'm half Mexican. I'm just assimilated. That doesn't mean anything. But that was rooted in cynicism. That was the old Paul. That was the pessimist side of me. Maybe there was something beautiful about being half Mexican and assimilated. Yes, I am assimilated. But maybe there was something there. And actually, I went on this journey of discovery that has enriched my life in the way God made me. I went on Pinterest to like things, to just be okay liking things. That's my preference. It's okay. I took personality tests, strength finders. I accepted that I'm not a J on the, on the Myers-Briggs. I'm not the organized person. I'm but I'm flexible. I like to go with the moment. And so embrace this process of discovery and delight in God. Embrace your strengths and weaknesses that God designed and then embrace your limitations because God put those there on purpose. They're not deficiencies. They're part of how God wants you to feel um, your need for him. You have deficiencies so that you would see God as the all-sufficient God. And so that when you become a part of his body, the church, you would say, I'm like this, but I'm not like this, but you are. I'm not very organized, but wow, praise God, you are. You're really funny. You're so funny. I love that. But I know I am, I don't know, I am responsible. <laughs> Whatever you, the point is, is that I, I think this has given you permission to see yourself as good, not deficient. And, and so embrace that. It's a step of faith to embrace the way God made you, your strengths, your limitations. It's all part of it. And then you become interdependent on one another. And lastly, because of that, you ought to help others believe in their souls the good news of their creation. And so we need to recover from the lives of Satan, from being beat up by the world that we're worthless, these messages going deep. So let us encourage each other. Let us remember that that person in front of you is an ocean of a human being who is fearfully and wonderfully made. Be interested in that. Be fearful of that in a good way. Be in awe of that. That person is not boring. That person is not a throwaway person. And I want you to apply this to people who are close to you. I want you to think of your children fearfully and wonderfully made. They're not like you. They're not meant to live up to all your hopes and dreams. They belong to God. His, it is his baby journal that he has kept for them that matters. I want you to think of your spouse. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. Your wife is not your mom. 
Your husband is not like your cool brother or father or whatever. Whatever comparison you are using, they're fearfully and wonderfully made. Every person you meet. So let us be like God, doting on one another, enjoying one another, affirming one another, so that our souls will know very well we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me pray. Lord, let us believe this good news with the joy and confidence that you call us to have because you are a good creator, but more than that, you have become our redeemer to bring us back to this, to save us from sin, but not to continue to wallow in self-cynicism and self-loathing, but to believe in the good news of our creation. Help us as a church to help each other, to affirm each other, to love each other. Lord, to, to have that same fear and wonder towards one another. That characterizes as a church, Lord, that we may live into our creation and be dependent on each other and on you as our sufficient God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.